ladies. I know, exactly. Up my mouth. Okay. After Hurricane Andrew, I don't know if any of you remember Hurricane Andrew. That was oh, more yeah. than a few years ago. Anyway, Hurricane Andrew devastated South Florida, and there was this lady named Patricia who was interviewed by Paul Harvey um, as she was waiting in line for food, and she vowed that she was going to get out of the state because she just couldn't handle destruction and chaos in her life anymore. She was going to leave on the first plane out. She was determined to get as far away from the horror of hurricane damage as she possibly could, and she was going to have a restful vacation. Well, Paul Harvey said he had just heard from Patricia Christie when he wrote this. She was standing in line for fresh water on the Hawaiian island of Kauai, having just gone through Hurricane Aniki. <laughs> so, as with the day of the Lord, you can run, but you can't hide. So, near the end of World War II, a single nuclear bomb devastated a city, and the world was ushered into the nuclear age. A split atom showed power and force such as the world had never seen. Throughout time, volcanoes, earthquakes, tidal waves, hurricanes, and tornadoes have unleashed uncontrollable and unstoppable force. We can only try to pick up the pieces after the devastation occurs. We stand in awe at the natural and man-made displays of power, strength, and might. But these forces cannot touch the power of our omnipotent God, the creator of galaxies, atoms, and natural laws. The sovereign Lord rules all there is and ever will be. How silly to live without him. How foolish to run and hide from him. How ridiculous to disobey him. But we do, don't we? Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have sought independence from his control as though we were gods and could control our own destiny. And he has allowed our rebellion. But soon, the day of the Lord will come. It is about this day that the prophet Joel speaks, and it is the theme of his book. That is why, oh, I wanted to tell you ladies, I'm using the New Living Translation because um, this was just really hard to understand, and I needed baby English. So all of these quotes are using the New Living Translation of the Bible. That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief. Instead, tear your hearts. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is not easily angered. He is filled with kindness and is eager not to punish you. Who knows? Perhaps even yet he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this terrible curse. Perhaps he will give you so much that you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. Verses 12 through 14. The people had become unfaithful to God even while they were enjoying all his material gifts. Grain, wine and oil, figs, pomegranates, grapes and apples, herds of cattle and sheep. 
The autumn and spring rains came at their usual time, providing for God's people, and they lived in security and prosperity. Yet they did not worship the true God of the covenant who had delivered them from Egyptian bondage and planted them in the beautiful land of Canaan. Instead, they became fascinated with paganism. Isn't it the same with us today? Instead of being loyal to God, who revealed himself to us through his holy scriptures and worshiping and serving him alone, we, we run to serve material and emotional idols. We also reject our God while still receiving all his generous gifts. Unfaithfulness is always the problem of God's people. We forsake the true and living God to try and live an independent life. We wander seeking happiness outside the will of God. We forget all the blessings that come from his hand, or we attribute them to our own abilities. God has a way of depriving his people of all their support systems. Why do you think he does this? To bring us to our knees and to make us cry out to him in our distress. So Joel speaks of a time when there is no food, no water, no milk, no wine, no oil, no worship, no celebration, no joy. There is misery everywhere. Is there a way out of this distress? Yes, God has provided a way out. It comes in the form of a divine command. Return to me with all your heart. There is only one way of coming back into favor with God. That is the way of repentance as revealed to Solomon by God in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Anyone who takes hold of this promise and repents will receive mercy, forgiveness, healing, and eternal salvation. God is not obligated to for forgive our sins, ladies. He doesn't have to heal anyone. He can justly destroy us in his wrath because we have all sinned against his person and despised his glory. Yet by his grace, the law of repentance still operates. What kind of repentance is demanded? God will not accept mere external superficial repentance. He demands heartfelt repentance. 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord demands a total change of our mind, will, and emotion. He won't accept the mere form of godliness. He won't accept weeping, wailing, and tearing of garments, for these are not true repentance. True repentance is feeling sorry for your sins enough to quit. If one's repentance doesn't lead to obedience, then it is phony repentance, and that becomes a sin on top of every other sin. The Lord is seeking a rent heart. He wants his people to listen to him, to believe him, and to turn to him alone. He requires them to forsake all evil philosophies and lies, to forsake all rebellion against the truth, and to believe his word. He wants them to tear their stony hearts, making them soft and responsive to him alone. In Zechariah 7, verses 12 and 13, God said, 
They made their hearts as hard as stone, so they could not hear the law or the messages that the Lord Almighty had sent them by his spirit through the earlier prophets. That is why the Lord Almighty was so angry with them. Since they refused to listen when I called to them, I would not listen when they called to me, says the Lord Almighty. We can never come into the favor of God without true repentance, without a soft heart, without listening and believing the word of God. In Psalm 51:17, we are told that the sacrifice God's, God wants is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart God will not despise. God is merciful, slow to anger. He is filled with kindness and is eager not to punish us. Knowing the goodness and mercy of God is another motive for true repentance. We come to him confident that he will heal and forgive and that he may relent from the announced judgment. The one thing that encourages us to repent and return to the Lord is the character of God. Such a gracious God might give a reprieve. Some translations say that God would relent or repent. This choice of words appears to suggest that God would change his mind, contradicting the fact expressly taught in scripture that God is in, immutable or unchangeable. We have to be very careful not to attribute human emotions to God. From man's finite perspective, it appears that God has changed his mind and purpose. God's warnings of judgment are not inflexible. The emphasis is on the personal relationship of God with his people. His attitude toward them is directly tied to their sensitivity to his will. He relents or repents of judgment when the response of the people is right and when he deems it is appropriate and in agreement with his plan and will. As explained in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, since the promise of judgment is conditioned on man's failure to meet God's standards, for man to repent and meet God in his gracious provision for him is to avert the, the just judgment of God. From man's point of view, God would seem to have changed his mind or feelings or repented concerning the evil. The opening words of verse 14, who knows? Perhaps he will, he will give you a reprieve is a statement of, a, of uncertainty from a human perspective. God's character is beyond doubt, but whether he will choose to withhold judgment in the present circumstance is not certain. The choice of expression stresses the freedom and sovereignty of God. According to the world, the word biblical commentary, human repentance does not control God. People cannot force God to show them his forgiveness. This can only appeal to him for mercy and not in not meeting out against them what they very well deserve. They may hope for his compassion, but they cannot command it. Please note that Joel's concern is that God's reprieve would mean that the people would have offerings to bring to the Lord, not just food for their tables. True repentance helps man to see God as he truly is and to yearn to worship him as he justly deserves. <laughs> Blow the trumpet in Jerusalem, announce a time of fasting, call the people together for a solemn meeting, bring everyone, the elders, the children, and even the babies. 
Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. The priests who minister in the Lord's presence will stand between the people and the altar weeping. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. They belong to you, so don't let them become an object of mockery. Don't let their name become a proverb of unbelieving foreigners who say, where is the God of Israel? He must be helpless. Verses 15 through 17. Joel had already called the people to, to the temple for repentance, but he now spells out in greater detail what is involved in their coming to petition God. The nation was instructed to fast, not just individually, but in a solemn assembly. This fast shows people humbling themselves as a nation before God, hoping that the coming judgment may be reversed. All the people were required to come, elders, children, those that nurse, bridegroom and bride. The crisis was so serious that those who would normally be exempt were required to gather to fast and pray. The invitation to genuine repentance had opened the door to the possibility of restored blessing. Therefore, the priests and leaders were to gather the people for a national demonstration of repentance. All three verbs used here, blow, announce, and call, are imperatives, reinforcing the need to act swiftly. Joel is basically saying, stop everything and start repenting. The priests were to stand between the porch and the altar of Solomon's temple. This area provided an entryway to the holy place. In their approach to God, the priests would have moved empty-handed past the altar of burnt offering. The locust plague and drought would prevent them from offering any material sacrifice. With their backs to the altar facing the door of the holy place, they were to weep and plead with the Lord, hoping that he would show mercy and stop the judgment. Their weeping was to be one of repentance, a bitter sense of sorrow over having offended the Lord. First of all, they were to pray for deliverance, that God would spare them, that he would pity them and show them compassion and mercy. Second, they were to pray that he would not allow them to become an object of mockery. Israel is the Lord's inheritance. They are his special treasure. The priests were to appeal on the basis of that special bond and their relationship as God's adopted children. The prayer of the priests ends with a plea for the Lord to intervene for the purpose of protecting his honor. The Lord's reputation is at stake, providing the strongest reason why he should act to stop judgment and vindicate both himself and his people. Then the Lord will pity his people and be indignant for the honor of his land. He will reply, look, I am sending you grain and wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy your needs. You will no longer be an object of mockery among the surrounding nations. I will remove these armies from the north and send them far away. I will drive them back into the parched wastelands where they will die. Those in the rear will go into the Dead Sea. Those at the front will go into the Mediterranean. The stench of their rotting bodies will rise over the land. Surely the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, my people. Be glad now and rejoice because the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, you animals of the field. The pastures will soon be green. The trees will again be filled with luscious fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will flourish once more. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For the rains he sends are an expression of his grace. 
Once more the autumn rains will come, as well as the rains of spring. The threshing floors will again be piled high with grain, and the presses will overflow with wine and olive oil. The Lord says, I will give back to you what you lost to the stripping locusts, the cutting locusts, the swarming locusts, and the hopping locusts. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. Once again, you will know that I am here among my people of Israel, that I alone am the Lord your God. My people will never again be disgraced like this. Verses 18 through 27. From this point forward, Joel devotes the remainder of his message to the restoration of material, spiritual, and national prosperity. The Lord reminds his people that based on their genuine repentance, he is pursuing them with a jealous love, and they will enjoy safety from their enemies. The focus of God's zealous action is his land and his people. God also promised to remove the armies from the north, driving them back into parched wastelands where they will die. Those in the rear will go into the Dead Sea, and those in the front will go into the Mediterranean Sea. Joel uses verb tenses in these um, verses to depict future events with such certainty that the action is expressed as though it had already occurred. The imagery changes in verse 20 from the locust plague to a mighty army ready to attack Israel. Although God did deliver Judah from the locust plague, and later on from the Assyrian invasion, <coughs> this looks forward to a greater time of deliverance in the distant future. Who is this army? Ezekiel describes a huge confederacy of nations who will descend upon Israel from the north in the final days. This alliance will be made up of Magog, which some say is modern-day Russia, Persia, which of course is Iran, Libya, Ethiopia, Gomer from Central Europe, and Tagorma, which is modern-day Turkey and Armenia. When will the army descend? Ezekiel says it will be in the latter days, or the last days, when Israel will be dwelling safely without bars or gates. The only time in scripture, ladies, that mentions a time when Israel is dwelling safely is during the first half of the tribulation. At that time, the Antichrist will make a covenant of peace with Israel, guaranteeing protection from her surrounding enemies. However, after three and a half years of peace, he will break his treaty, turn on Israel, and start to persecute all who won't worship him and his image, which will be erected in the temple. Joel promised Judah that she would not have to lift a finger to defend herself. God would remove the enemy. Furthermore, he would no longer make them an object of mockery among the nations. Well, anyone who hasn't been living under a rock knows that promise hasn't yet been fulfilled. The Jews have been hated and discriminated against for centuries, and this continues into the present day. This heinous treatment will not cease until Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom on earth. Once the Lord intervenes, the land rejoices. The pastures will be green and animals will no longer have to fear for their survival. The trees will be filled with luscious fruit. The grapevines will flourish. 
The autumn and spring rains will come once again, the threshing floors will be piled high with grain, and the presses will overflow with wine and oil. His people will turn from weeping and shame to rejoicing over the renewal of their land. The Lord also promises to provide full compensation for all the losses suffered. The phrase, I will make up to you, is a legal term illustrating restitution for damages paid to a wronged party who has suffered loss. Even though Israel herself was the guilty party and could make no formal claim, God is graciously reimbursing them for their loss, all that the locusts have eaten. There will continually be abundance, they will be satisfied, and they will praise his name. God has done these miracles for them, and they will know that he is among his people, and that he alone is the Lord their God. Then, after I have poured out my rains again, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on servants and women and men alike. I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon will turn blood red before the great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There will be people on Mount Zion in Jerusalem who escape just as the Lord has said. These will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. Verses 28 through 32. Well, ladies, we're not done yet. I feel like one of those infomercial announcers. Wait, there's more. There's been devastation and repentance and restoration, and now the day of the Lord. After the restoration, Joel spoke of previously in the chapter, there will come a time of ultimate restoration and blessing. This latter time will be marked by an outpouring of God's Spirit on all flesh. The Old Testament has a rich record of the work of the Spirit, but he was not poured out on all flesh under the Old Covenant. Instead, certain men were filled with the Spirit at certain times and only for certain duties. Here Joel looks towards the New Covenant, when the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. This was partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples gathered in the upper room waiting in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised would come. When the Spirit was poured out, there was a sound from heaven of a rushing wind, and the 120 followers of Jesus were all filled with the Spirit and began to praise God in other tongues. Jerusalem was crowded because of the Feast of Pentecost, so a crowd quickly gathered, having heard the roar of the wind. As the believers were speaking, each pilgrim in the crowd recognized the language or dialect of his own country. Some who heard the, dis the disciples praise God in these miraculous languages began to mock them, claiming they were drunk. <coughs> Peter stood up and boldly set the record straight. They weren't drunk, it's only nine in the morning. This was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the outpouring of the Spirit. At first, any Jew would scoff at the idea of followers of a crucified man being filled with the Holy Spirit. Blessed
blessed on their understanding, God would only pour out his spirit on special people for special duties, not on common, uneducated people. Peter used this prophecy to show that everything was different now. Just as God said, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all who believe. God offered a new covenant relationship, and part of that was the outpouring of the Spirit for all who received Christ in faith. The giving of the Spirit was, was without distinction of sex, age, or social status. Traditional and social boundaries no longer apply. The same privileges and blessing are given to all. Joel mentions that the Lord's second coming will be preceded by certain signs, wonders in the heavens and on the earth. The wonders on the earth, blood, fire, and smoke, are a manifestation of God's judgment on ungodly men at the pouring out of the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments enumerated in the book of Revelation. This display of supernatural power on earth will be accompanied by catastrophes in the heavens, sun turned into darkness, and the moon turned blood red. Scripture doesn't explain just how these heavenly phenomena will occur, but makes clear that it is the Lord that will cause these things to happen. Knowing the horrors of the great tribulation, will any escape the terrible day of the Lord? Yes, the survivors whom the Lord has called will be saved to enter the kingdom of Christ on earth. Only a remnant out of thousands will be saved. Zechariah states that two-thirds of the Jewish population will be killed in the tribulation. The one-third that survives will be the remnant who calls upon the Lord. After the Lord destroys the armies who converge upon Jerusalem, he will set his feet upon the Mount of Olives, which will split apart, forming a massive valley before the east gate of Jerusalem. Upon Christ's arrival, the Jewish people who have had a veil over their eyes for centuries will have it lifted to see that he is the true Messiah. Zechariah wrote, And they will look on me whom they have pierced, and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. Paul's prophecy in Romans 11, 26 and 27 will be fulfilled. And so all Israel will be saved. Do you remember what the prophet said about this? A deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn Israel from all ungodliness. And then I will keep my covenant with them and take away their sins. Once they repent, God will take away the sin of his people. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, paints a picture of that day when they will be ruled over by their Messiah in the millennial kingdom. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant, and I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone 
from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your word that your name is a strong tower and that the righteous run to it and are safe. Help us to rely on you alone, Lord, your faithfulness, power, your mercy, and your wisdom for our security. You guide the destinies of nations and individuals. You promise in your word that as we repent and cry out to you that you will receive us cleanse us of our sins, and bring us into a proper relationship with you. Give us the wisdom to listen to you and to turn back from going our own way. Help us to yield our hearts and lives to you, the one who has given his life, <coughs> so that we may be saved. Amen.